Good morning, church family. You may be seated. Uh, let's give our, our praise team a round of applause this morning. Those ladies and gentlemen put in extra time and served this church in such a valuable way. I'm so thankful for each and every one of them. Uh, and I'm thankful for everyone uh, in our church family that takes time out of their schedules to serve and minister uh, to the people of this church. Thank you so much. Uh, I have been blessed by some of the emails and phone calls and conversations I've had with some of you uh, about what God is doing through this sermon series. I hope your hearts will be receptive this morning. We're going to continue some thoughts today on following the Lord Jesus into freedom through forgiveness. Uh, if you'll recall, last week I challenged you to do three things. I challenge you to commit to your calling. And everybody wants to say, I'm called to ministry, or I'm called to have a great fulfilling marriage, or I'm called to a career that's going to pay me a lot so that I can be a giver. And the center of so many people's perception of their calling is their own comfort. And what we see in the lifestyle of Jesus is that our calling is to suffer. And we've got to commit as, as sons and daughters of God to being willing to follow Jesus into a lifestyle of discomfort and suffering. That's how we really follow Jesus' Jesus's example, which is the second thing I asked you to do. Really work on connecting your heart more deeply to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ by following his example. When he was insulted... He did not insult those who were insulting him. When he was battered and being crucified, he willingly subjected himself to that pain and misery. And that's the challenge to you. In life, be willing to subject yourself to some pain and misery and agony simply because you want to connect more deeply to the heart of Jesus Christ by following his example. Last thing I ask you to do is change your thinking about struggling situations and stormy seasons. Begin to open your heart and mind to the idea that perhaps seasons of struggle and difficulty, God is using to mold you and shape you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is going to be our jumping point, our starting point for this morning. I told you I had God really impressed upon my heart two goals for this series. Uh, The first goal, uh, if you remember from last week, is that I don't want anyone in our church family... To have a spirit of unforgiveness towards anyone outside of this church. And I don't want, the second goal is I don't want anyone in our church family to have a spirit of unforgiveness towards anyone else inside this church. Okay, so to that end, today, I want to talk to you about how to really firmly root yourself on the most solid foundation in the universe. And that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, last week I, I called that sermon Preparing for Freedom. And if you do those three things, your heart would begin to soften and you'd be prepared to really let go of some bitterness and some pain that you experience. The second thing you got to do is establish yourself on the firm foundation that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the most firm and secure foundation in the known, and I like to say in the unknown universe. That covers everything. Now, this sermon specifically is for people this morning who feel like they've been wronged, who feel like they've experienced an injustice, and really haven't. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who have genuinely experienced injustice and wrong, 
And then there are others of us who feel like we've had wrong done to us, and in reality, we haven't. And in situations like that, the thing that keeps us feeling offended and bitter, I want you to hear this this morning, in situations where we feel we've been done wrong, and in fact we haven't, the the root cause of that is our pride. And the reason you and I struggle with pride is because we are not actually rooted on the sure foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we're rooted on the foundation of self. And that's the definition of pride when we are rooted on a foundation of ourselves versus rooted deeply in the secure foundation that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you this, God loves you and I enough to shake us to our core so that we'll establish ourselves on a firmer foundation. The first thing I want to teach you this morning in life is if there is something in your life that can be shaken... If there is something in your life that is not firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and securely established in Him, if there is something in your heart that can be shaken, it will be shaken. God is not content to leave you insecure and unstable. In your life, if you can be shaken, if something in your life can be shaken, it it will be shaken. Now, to really dig into this and tie this into pride and help God just pull that poison out of your heart, I'm going to be skipping around to some different texts following this theme throughout Scripture. I've got those all in your notes on your church app this morning. So you can follow me doing a Bible drill. I think it's so important to carry your Bible with you. Uh, uh, I've been carrying this one around for about 15 years. Got this right after I surrendered to Christ. And you can tell I've got some holes worn in this baby uh, based on how I carry it. All right. So I like having your Bible around. If you uh, don't want to do a Bible drill, skipping all around, I've got your notes in your church app and you can follow along. Let me give you Hebrews chapter 12 to start us off. And I'm going to build what I'm going to teach you this morning from this passage of Scripture. And it echoes that idea I just mentioned. If there is an area of your life that is not firmly rooted in the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's because of pride. It's because you think you're more secure and your way is better ultimately than the security you can find and the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, uh, God is speaking, and the writer of Hebrews recalls words that God has said and writes them in this section of Scripture. Here's what the Word of God says. At that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, quote, Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken might remain. God has some purposes for either allowing or in some instances bringing shaking seasons into our lives. God's always got a plan, and His plan is always to fashion you and form you and your character into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the suffering servant. 
And that's not always a fun or a delightful or a comforting process. God sometimes uses shaking or allows seasons of shaking, stormy seasons, seasons of suffering, and seasons of discomfort to come into our lives to accomplish that purpose. Let me tell you a few things that God does through shaking. The first thing that God does when we are shaken is He gets rid of what's not rooted in Him. God gets rid of what is not rooted in him or or established on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the truth. You need to get the sin out of your life if you're going to be set free from the bitterness that is in your heart. You've got to get the sin out of your life if you want to be set free from the bitterness that is in your heart. Why does shaking occur in our lives? Because we have a sinful area of our lives that God is trying to deal with and allows a season of shaking to come upon us to get the sin out of our lives. And so many people time and time again will complain, I'm just in a stormy season, I'm in a season of struggle, I'm in a season of difficulty, I'm in a season of trial. And it's all because they've got the same sin consistently in their lives. And those sinful areas are ultimately not rooted in God. Second thing God intends to do through shaking is make room for new growth. This is the pruning process. Jesus talks about this all through the Gospels. Ultimately, if our character is going to be developed into the image of Christ, we've got to have room to grow into his image. And God allows seasons of shaking to happen so that there's room for growth. The next thing God intends to do through seasons of shaking is ultimately to establish us on a more firm and solid foundation. Uh, I've never lived in an area of the country that experiences earthquakes. But when I feel unstable in life, I lower my center of gravity, spread my legs out, and kind of brace for impact. I, I establish myself more firmly. And if we're going to weather the storms and seasons of life, sometimes we've got to be shaken enough to really establish ourselves more firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be more secure and more established and withstand the storms as they happen in our lives. Shaking also reveals weakness. It shows us areas of our lives that we need to grow up in, not just grow old in. So so many of us grow old without actually growing up. In certain areas of our lives. And it's in seasons of shaking that Christians really wake up. Stormy seasons. You guys are like me. If we're asleep at night, we hear a loud clap of thunder. And the wind's blowing and rain's coming down hard. All of us wake up and you're doing what I'm doing. I'm checking my phone. Is there severe weather in the area? Is there a chance of a tornado? I'm from the Midwest. So uh, grew up in an area of the country called Tornado Alley. And when a storm came through, everybody was wide awake. Now in Kansas, what that means is you get your lawn chairs out, you put them on your front yard, and you watch the storm. That's how, that's how we do that in Kansas. So storms are a reason for people to wake up, go outside, hang out, look up, and talk about what God's doing in the weather. All right? There are too many Christians that are walking around half asleep in their spiritual life. 
And sometimes God sends or allows seasons of shaking in our lives to get us out of bed and wake us up and prevent us from being sleepy, nominal, daydreamy Christians and transform us into the type of men and women who are front lines followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wake-up call. You want to know if things in your life's need shaken up, look at your reaction to being shaken. Think of a season where God allowed or your own sinfulness or the sin of someone else caused a season of shaking and look at your own character. And you can see based on how you behaved in that season of shaking, whether there, whether or not there's some parts of you that are half asleep or some parts of you that are dead and need to be cleared out to make room for new growth. Here, here's the capital T truth. How you behave when you are being shaken is how the real you behaves. And that's tough medicine for some of us to take. I want to pretend like the real me is the me who uh, behaves well when, is how I behave when things are all going great. But the better picture of who Trent really is, is how Trent behaves under pressure. So the scriptures give us some good examples of how uh, this operates. I'm going to go to John chapter 6 to give you a sense of how a group of people's character is revealed when they are offended. Now, this today is about people who think they've been offended and haven't. And ultimately, that's because of pride. I'm going to talk about some of the symptoms of pride in a little bit. There's a group of people that should have gotten it and didn't, should have been mature and weren't, should have been firmly rooted on the secure foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as it turns out, weren't connected to Christ deeply or intimately at all, and that group of men was the, were the disciples. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus has just given a hard teaching. Mike Williams actually referenced this in his communion talk. Jesus was talking about communion. And in John chapter 6, I've got verse 60 for you on the screen. Many of his disciples, after hearing the teaching of Jesus, said, Man, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Or where his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, listen to the word he uses here, Does this offend you? Does this upset you a little bit? Does this seem a little bit confrontational? Is this a little bit not what you expected to hear? Does this challenge you a little bit? Does this cause a little bit of discomfort? Jesus is asking them if they're offended. And have they been firmly rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Had they firmly allowed God to shape and transform their character into the character of Jesus Christ, the answer to the question would have been, no, Lord, that doesn't offend us. It challenges us. It shows us where we need to grow. It clears some of the junk out of our lives. And we can follow more in your footsteps because we've got a greater understanding of you. That's not their reaction at all. Jesus then goes on to keep teaching. What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Listen to verse 66 and how tragic this statement is. From this time, many... 
of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Here's the tragedy in offense. When we allow ourselves to be offended, and I'm choosing my words surgically precise there. I want to say that again. When you allow yourself to be offended, and that's a choice you have to make, you've got to willingly let bitterness take root in your spirit. When you allow yourself to be offended, here's what you do. You exchange the life of the spirit for the death and misery of the flesh. That's what Jesus is teaching him. He's saying, is what I've said offensive to you? Because I'm trying to teach you about the spirit and about life and to give you a life. But so you are so quick to leave what I've taught you about the spirit and about life and do what makes you feel good and follow what you can understand and take the path that's comfortable for you. So many of us in life, when we're offended, have that same reaction. Instead of staying in the saddle and battling through and following after Jesus, we tuck our tail, turn, and run. I see this all the time in marital relationships. Somebody in a marital relationship tells somebody else, hey, I've got this certain need or I have this expectation. And the other person in the relationship takes offense And maybe doesn't physically desert the other person, although unfortunately that happens and much too frequently, but emotionally deserts the other person. And even though they're in the same household, they're miles and miles apart. The same thing happens in churches. One person gives some feedback to another person. It's maybe not what they want to hear. And even though we're committed to living in the same church community, we might as well be miles and miles apart because I've withdrawn. And ultimately, that withdrawal is to protect myself. But here's the deceptive trap of the enemy. You've ultimately exchanged the life of the spirit, which is true life, for the destruction of the flesh. You've worried about protecting your own self and staying comfortable versus pursuing the the discomforting, at times, life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tragedy here is the phrase, many. It wasn't just a few of the disciples that left the Lord Jesus Christ. It was many. And these were people who should have known better. They had seen the life and ministry of Jesus. They had an understanding of the things of God. They had begun to grow in their faith. And when the going got tough, they walked away. But I thank God for for the disciple who spoke up. Peter after the twelve are asked, you don't want to leave too, do you? Speaks up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter was a strong guy. He was a man of action. He seemed to be a a man of faith. He was in Jesus' inner circle. It was Peter, James, and John. But here's the capital T truth about your life and mine. Not everything that looks strong is as strong as it looks. And this is where we begin to see pride start to creep up in the lives of men and women who follow after God. 
If you and I had to choose a disciple at this point in Scripture that was strong and seemed like he had it together and, and could not be shaken, we would have said, Peter, let me give you some reasons why. In Matthew 16, this is not on the screen. Uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus comes to Caesarea at Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And he's referring to himself. And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter speaks up. And he says something really similar to what he just said in John chapter 6. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. At at that point, Peter was connected enough to God to get revelation and truth from the Lord. He looked uh, by every external appearance to be strong. He was the Christian that attended church on Sunday. He was even there on Wednesday night, had a service ministry, and went to a, a, a community group Bible study on the weekends. He, he had a good smile on his face. He knew God's Word. And based on the, the checks and balances we can see from the outside, this guy seemed to have it together. He even went as far, and I like this about this guy, of cutting off the ear of one of the people who came to arrest Jesus. This is John 18.10, not on the screen. I just wanted to give this to you. Simon Peter has a sword. I, I hope this would be me. You know, not, not that I want my life to turn out like Peter's, but I hope that I would be the disciple first that would be carrying around a sword. You know what I'm saying? Like, that just speaks to kind of a rough around the edges dude. And I feel like I can identify with that a little bit. Right, so Peter apparently was carrying around a blade, fixing to cut people. Who wouldn't be converted. And I'm going to tell you something else. I'm thinking about doing that in this church. All right. I will cut you. We might really start getting some obedience up in here. Anyway, Peter had a sword. He draws it. And Malchus is coming to arrest Jesus. He cuts this guy's ear right off. Peter was, was a, seemed to be a man of faith. He was a man of action. He was a devoted follower of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' inner three. Okay? I want to give you, this is Luke chapter 22. And, and I want to give you this section of Scripture. And I, and I hope you'll think about this. And I hope you'll think how easy it is to assume we're strong and overestimate our reliance on Christ and underestimate our reliance on our own selves which is really where Peter's pride starts to well up. So this is Jesus with his disciples. He's eating the last supper. And after the supper, he took the cup saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Listen to what Jesus says. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, But woe to the man who betrays him. Now, the disciples' reaction to Jesus' statement, I feel like at this point, is is appropriate. And, And they start to question which of them it might be who would do this. Who 
among our group, which of the 12 of us, having seen the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ, having witnessed his miracles, having experienced some of God's revelation, um, having been capable of doing healing and apostolic ministry ourselves, which of us could, could betray the Lord Jesus? And apparently that conversation keeps going and developing and takes a turn. The conversation takes a turn. And I haven't, I haven't ever taught this completely the way it appears in the text. So most of the time when I'm preaching this text, I stop there. And I say things like, man, how, how, how intense it would have been in that moment and to imagine that that could have been me that betrayed Jesus. But, but the disciples, that conversation begins to grow, apparently, and develop and takes a turn. Look at the very next verse. So first they question amongst themselves which of them it might be who would betray Jesus. And then the next topic that comes up in that discussion happens. And a dispute rises among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. That's unfathomable. Jesus is in the hour of his greatest trial and tribulation and tells them, one of my closest friends is going to betray me. Can you imagine coming to dinner at my house and me telling you I am in the most difficult season of my life? Someone from my own family that I've been close to for years and worked alongside and done ministry together, someone has betrayed me. And you are so connected to your own self-sufficiency and pride that you turn around to me and say, Well, Trent, I bet you I'm going to be the best friend you ever have. I'm so great at doing the things you asked me to do and doing ministry the way you do that I bet I'll be the best thing that's ever happened. That's what these guys end up arguing about. Who is going to be the greatest? And they totally miss the point Because of their own pride. Jesus says to them, the king, and and Jesus in his patience, listen to this. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are not those who have stood by me in my trials. Wow. How confrontational. How how tragic. And I confer on you, regardless of that fact, a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus' followers are betraying him in this moment, and he is blessing them and training them. And saying, I'm going to confer on you a kingdom, and you will be blessed And then he says in verse 31, I want you to catch this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. That word sift is of a similar origin to the word shaken in Hebrews 12. Hey, hey, Simon, there's going to come a season and it's going to happen quick where you're going to be shaken. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back strengthen your brothers. Does Peter get it yet? 
Look at this next verse, and the answer speaks for itself. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, and you know the rest of the story. I'm not going to repeat it here, but Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you are going to fall flat on your face because you don't get it yet. One thing I think is interesting about this is so many of us would try to prevent a season of shaking in the life of another if we knew it was coming. Jesus knew it was coming in Peter's life, and he doesn't say, Peter, you're getting ready to enter a stormy season. You're going to be shaken, and we've got to stop this, man. I don't want you to experience the pain and misery and agony you're going to have to go through because you're about to get uh, 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 hurricane-force winds completely destroy the house that you've built up for yourself on a foundation of sand. Jesus says, no, but I've prayed for you that no matter the strength of the winds or the amount of the rain or the level of desperation that you feel, that your own faith would not fail you. And Jesus was willing for him to be shaken because he needed Peter's pride to be purged from his life. This, this passage of Scripture is almost at the point of insanity for me because of the level of pride demonstrated. I want to give you a couple of uh, symptoms of a prideful heart. I've got these on screen for you, and they're in your notes The primary reason you're going to struggle with forgiving the people in your life that you think have hurt you is because of the pride that has hardened your heart concerning those things. And especially in human relationships, the following things, the things I'm about to mention are symptoms of pride. We see every single one of them right here in this text. The first thing that we see is this group of disciples is way too self-assured. They are overconfident. Peter says it plainly, Lord, I'm I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus says, man, you're not even going to make it 24 hours. That's insane that he had so little understanding of his own capability. An overconfident spirit is a spirit that says it's not my fault and can't see their own error in any given situation. Now, now, it was important for me on the front end as I'm working through this part of the sermon to let you know. I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about instances where you have been harmed and it was legitimate. Not talking about abuse, not talking about profound betrayal, not talking about someone who took advantage of you. That's not what I'm talking about. But that's, that's not the, the stuff we're going through on a day-to-day basis that accumulates bitterness in our heart. What accumulates bitterness in our heart is that Trent didn't preach a sermon the way I thought that he should preach it, all right? Or that my team didn't win the Super Bowl, or that this person I don't know cut me off in traffic, or that it took too long to get through the drive-thru and get my food, or they don't have enough uh, uh, checkout workers at Walmart. And that is true, though. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Come on, somebody, all right? It's the small stuff that accumulates... That really doesn't, that shouldn't hurt us. And it's because we live in a state of mind of overconfidence that it's not my fault, that I can't do wrong, and I've got this thing figured out. That's the attitude of the disciples. Second symptom of a prideful heart is insensitivity. What a tragedy that Jesus is under the greatest pressure he will ever be in, 
And the disciples are totally disconnected from the condition of his heart. And if you have a prideful spirit, it will be difficult to the point of impossible for you to feel how other people are feeling. We call that empathy. Okay? It, it, prideful hearts cannot connect with how other people are feeling. And if your heart is insensitive, if you can't connect to the state of being of others in your life, your heart may be prideful. How could they not have sensed the pressure Jesus was under? It's because their hearts were prideful and they were insensitive to the, the state of being of the heart of Jesus. If it's not obvious, it should be that these guys were self, that completely self-centered. I think at this moment in their spiritual life, each of these in, individuals really believed that the world revolved around them. And if we're being honest with ourselves, that's a core belief we probably have to some degree. When I'm in the Walmart checkout line and it's taken too long, it's an inconvenience for me. When traffic is bad and I'm trying to get home and it's 6 o'clock at night and I've been gutting it out all day, all those other vehicles are frustrating to me and they're in my way because this is my world and they're just living in it. That's, that's how a lot of us feel. When I'm at a restaurant and they serve me the wrong food, I feel personally, very personally and devastatingly attacked. How dare they not get my order right? And, and God forbid they take too long when I'm hungry. Because I'm going to get hangry like in a quick minute. But he, here's what we don't realize. The, the people who are checking us out at Walmart have a job whose tedium and repetition would boggle our mind. We, we couldn't even imagine. And what if we're the ones who are making their day more difficult? And what if we'd have been more productive and chosen to shop at a non-peak time so that we didn't overwhelm these employees with more work than they're capable of doing? What if our reckless driving is endangering all the other people we're on the road with at 6 o'clock, some of whom may be even in a bigger hurry than we are to get home and care for their sick children because everybody in their household has the flu and they still have to get up and hustle all day to try to provide for their families and have insurance policies that cover their illness. Maybe it's me who's really inconveniencing them. Maybe the waiter who's a little bit aloof or the waitress who's a little bit aloof and, and is not super fast with refilling my drinks at the restaurant and getting my food to me. Maybe her best friend is struggling with a serious terminal illness and she's a little bit preoccupied that particular day. And I'm really causing that pain and stress to be a lot worse than it should be. What if I'm really not the center of the universe? But we're programmed every single day to behave and act like we are. Everything in our, our culture is marketed towards us as being the very best. And the little princes or the little queens of the entire planet. And that's exactly where the enemy wants to get us to live. Because if he can put you at the center of your own universe, then everything that doesn't go your way is deeply personally offensive to you. The last thing that I think is a symptom of pride in relationships that will completely stranglehold your ability 
to forgive things that really you shouldn't have to forgive anyway is ignorance. I, I could have said blindness. It's lack of the capacity to see in yourself any of the things I just mentioned. And so if you're going right now, man, none of that applies to me. I got really bad news that's actually really good news for you. That's exactly you. I just perfectly described you. If you're saying, thank God, none of that applies to me. We try to convince ourselves. How, how, how are we supposed to live in life? Let's just be real practical. We sometimes have to convince ourselves just to get through our day that our lives aren't broken and messed up. And I understand that. And if that's what it takes to get through a rough day, fine. But if you start to live a lifestyle of blindness into your own spirit, then you're going to be living the most miserable, disconnected, prideful life you can imagine. And you probably can't even imagine it. So I want to go, I want to go back. I want to teach you the solution to this. And it's, it's, it's rooted in the text that I led with today. Been waiting to get here the whole lesson. I know I'm running long. I'm going to wrap in just a second. The best in your life is yet to come. If you will really look at the pridefulness in your life and how you establish yourself on your own foundation instead of the secure foundation of Jesus Christ, you cannot imagine how incredible life can get. The text I read from Hebrews 12 is actually a quote from a minor prophet that most of us never would read. It's, it's Haggai chapter 2. I'm going to give you verses 4 through 9. Here's what the Bible says. And this is, this is the prophet Haggai speaking to a guy named Zerubbabel who worked with a guy named Ezra to rebuild the temple. And then a guy named Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall all in Jerusalem. They had all been torn down. And God sends these guys on a rebuilding mission. And Haggai says to these guys who are going through this rebuilding process, he says, Be strong, Zerubbabel, one of the guys who's rebuilding the temple, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Life is going to be a challenge. Things in your life are going to get broken down. Winds are going to come. Enemies are going to invade. And you're going to experience a crumbling of the walls around you. This is what God's telling his people. But do the work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, this thing that we're building will be shaken. I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 9, I love this. And the glory of the house that will be rebuilt, the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place... I will grant peace. God's saying, man, the, the, the walls of your house have come crumbling down. And you are looking at rubble. And you're complaining. And that's the context of this verse. You're complaining because it just doesn't look as pretty as it did the first time. We can see the cracks in the foundation. We can see the repairs. We can see the differences. And it just doesn't feel the same. It's not as, it's, it's not as sentimental. It's not as perfect. There's some bumps and some bruises. And there's some scars. And God's saying, none of that matters. 
The bruises in life you take, the bumps in life you take, the scars in life, that's, that's okay. Because the rebuilding I am doing is going to be way better than the first product. And the glory that I'm going to bring is going to be even more glory than I brought the first time. And I'm going to finish this in the trim of peace. Three things, uh, four things you got to do to be, three things you got to do to be established on a firm foundation. God repeats multiple times, you got to be strong. You got to be strong. When God reveals the pridefulness in your heart to you, you got to be strong enough to admit your weakness in those areas and give it over to Him. You got to be strong enough to fully surrender. You know, the weaker we feel, the more we want to be in control and, and give people the illusion that we're tough. The stronger we really are, the less we got to put up that pretense and we can really admit we're broken and messed up. And that takes a lot of strength. Second thing you got to do, really abide in the Spirit. God says, hey, as you're going through this rebuilding, as you're experiencing being more deeply rooted on the foundation of Jesus Christ, learn to trust and live with the awareness that God's Spirit is with us. We're not doing this alone. We're not doing this without a helper. And we're not doing this without the comfort that that helper brings. And the last thing God says is, you don't have to fear. And so many of us hang on to our bitterness. I really want to, wanted to get here, and I'm going to close. So many of us hang on to our bitterness as this cloak of protection. And if I won't let it go and my heart will stay hard, then you can't ever get back in and hurt me again. And the fear is if I let that go, what, what do I have left? And what will my life look like? And then I'll have to look at all my bumps and bruises and cuts and scars and mess-ups and mistakes and failures. And God's saying, it's in the bruises and scars and the mistakes and failures and shortcomings and faults and stormy seasons that I get to put you back together the way I want you. And when you're put back together the way I want you, you're stronger and there's greater glory because no one would believe you could be where you are if it wasn't me doing something greater in you than you could do even for yourself. It it, it will be even more peace-filled because your life's no longer about you. It's about me. And every area there's brokenness. And every area there's been weakness. And every area there's been tragedy. And every area there's been struggle. When I rebuild that house, that house will be more beautiful and more glorious and more peace-filled and even stronger because it's a house built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Not on the foundation of you. If you'll let God do that work in your life, if you'll let Him pull the pridefulness out of your spirit and establish you humbly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, you're going to be ready to practice the art of letting go. That's where we're going next week. But you don't get to get there if your heart is still hardened by pride. I'm going to, I'm going to close in a prayer right now. And I want to challenge you to begin to allow God to soften that heart. To, to begin the process of healing by surrendering the pride and letting God replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. If you'll do that, your life will begin to transform. And when God challenges you to let some things go next week, you'll be prepared to really surrender it to Him. Let's pray. 
Precious Heavenly Father, we come before you just grateful for your word, grateful for this church, grateful for the ministry you do here and all over the world, God. And I ask that the pridefulness of our hearts would be cast down in Jesus' name and we would no longer be rooted in our own strength, but instead would be humbly rooted in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's rebuilding our lives, we rejoice at knowing the rebuild will be more glorious and filled with peace than the former life ever could have been. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise for everything that you're doing in the lives of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me while together we sing.